That is Eddie Vega. And that is Chiburduña. And this is Words. And Shit. Brought to you by the Blah Poetry Spot and Write Art Out. The show where you get to know the person behind the poetry. You know, Eddie, I've been thinking about something recently. What is that? What is that you to know, me? You know, we're we're in this pandemic, right? We're, we're kind of shut we're down. It. We're in it. Limited choices, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some things that we just have standards about, right? Oh, Something yeah. That we can't accept anything less than what we've come to expect. Exactly, yeah. So, Eddie... I might know the answer to this already, but I'm curious. What are you bougie about? Uh, the quality of my tortillas. <gasps> the you tortillas know? specifically. Exactly. Like my corn, I've got to have, I prefer the yellow corn from H-E-B. Because, you know, it's an everyday tortilla. It's not, not, you know, it's not a special occasion kind of thing. Mm. But I'm, and if I want the flour, I'm going to get those ones that, um, that, you, that, that come in that section where they're like not quite cooked yet. Where you cook the rest of them here. Oh. And they taste as close as I can to my mom's tortillas. <laughs> I recently discovered the butter flavored tortillas from HEV. Those are pretty good. Those ones that they make in the store, you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. They come oh, out, they're yeah. still kind of warm. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the, the, back when, you know, the, we had samples and stuff, mm. the ladies would give you a sample and they would melt in your mouth. It was like you were at Krispy Kreme when they give you one of those. Mm. You know, it was they would just disappear. All you need is a little crema and salt and just roll it up and it's good to go. Exactly. What are you? You must be bougie about a few things. Uh, I'm a Gemini, so I'm usually pretty flex Uh about things. But there's one thing, and I'm talking about, like, this is lifelong, that just, I I don't know what it is about me. I think I have a mutetic, mute, 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 mutetic, a a genetic mutation. (laughs) <laughs> a genetic mutation in my ears, but audio quality. Oh, yeah. Audio. Yeah, I know. You know how I know is I've turned off every appliance in my apartment for the last couple of months because of the audio quality. I can I hear the buzzing in the mind. background, Eddie. I can hear the buzzing. There, yes, yes. <laughs> Same and, thing with like, and my husband like gripes me about it because like it's to an obsessive point where like when we're watching something, I will be like, wait, wait, wait. I think it needs more bass. Mm, I don't know. If I need to vocal enhance it a little bit. Ooh, that's too much trouble. No, no, no. I got to bring it like, I will fiddle with it. Yeah, like you have your own mixer. Almost, almost, you know. <laughs> I, I am not ashamed about the amount of money I spend on speakers. And then I cannot watch something if the audio and video are not in sync. Wow, you know, wow. I cannot, no. I will just no. get so frustrated after 30 seconds. I mean, it does, I understand. It does kind of like hurt, hurt the ears and the eyes to see when that's a little bit off. Yeah. yeah. It's strange. And same thing when like I get into a car, first thing I do is put on some music and adjust the bass, the treble, the mids, all of it. Like, cause I can't. Wow. I didn't know. Any, I mean, I've seen those dials. I never knew that people actually like, you know. <laughs> they do things and it's important. You know, but I think that's one of the, the endearing things about people is like those things that they're like super particular about that maybe uh-huh. nobody knows that they're super particular about. That was one of the things that we learned with our guest that she's got her own little idiosyncratic peculiarity, peculiarity yeah. about a certain product. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to give it away. No spoilers. No. no. But I thought it was hysterical. I thought it was hilarious. Because <laughs> it came out of left field. We didn't know that that was, that was going to be a thing. It came out of left field. And also, we talked about it for, I think, way too long. But it was <laughs> like an enjoyable part of the conversation. But this is words and shit. We talk about words. We talk about shit. Whatever it is. So tell us about our guest today. <laughs> Deborah D. Mouton. She's an international writer, educator, activist, poet, laureate, emeritus of Houston, Texas. Formerly the uh, number two best female poet in the world. Founder of the longest running poetry slam and venue in Houston called Houston VIP. And you know them. They got a pocket full of poems. Mm. 
her work has appeared in Houston Noir, Black Girl Magic, Fjord's Journal, Crab Orchard Review. She's been on NPR, BBC, ABC, Apple News, Blavity, Upworthy, across the TEDx circuit. She's a serving and she's a contributing writer for Texas Monthly, which is actually the last place I saw her at. I saw her at the Texas Monthly offices once, like last year, I think. Maybe it was, I don't know what year it was anymore, because I don't know where we are anymore. <laughs> Time is a construct. She was there. She's an amazing performer. I, I've been looking at her videos like all day and reading her stuff. Uh, we are thoroughly immersed in all. We're, we're, we're immersed in the deep is what we are. Mm -hmm. We are rolling in the deep is what we're doing. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Deborah Deep Mouton. What's up? How are you guys doing? I mean, all things considered. <laughs> yeah. No, I said I was going to stop asking people that, and then I still default to that. It's such a hard thing to, like, break yourself of because it's like, oh, yeah, things are good. But it's like, are they really, though? Are they? <laughs> Not at all for anyone. That's the problem. Uh, well, we are so excited to have you here with us today and to have this conversation. You are a powerhouse of not just a poet, but a person. Um, so we're so happy that you are here. Um, let's just start the show off the way we always do and just hand it over to you to read some poems. Sounds good. Um, so I'm going to read from my book, Newsworthy. It's outside. There, there, something like that. Mirroring images is not my strength. Um, yeah. So, you know, as the world begins to battle, not begins, that's a lie. As the world confronts that it has always been battling multiple things in America, and race is um, a high priority in that. I dedicate this reading to that. And because I said I would say her name until something moved, um, killer, they need to arrest your killers. Here we go. First time around the block. One, two, three, four, five. Feet syncopate hopscotch under ripe street lights. Sun crawls down the backside of the mountain. We sand our hands in four squares on rubber balls. We bounce Sally Walker and a cool drink of Kool-Aid powdered in sugar Ziploc till all parts of our mouths stain cherry rebel defiant. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Streets so alive in L.A. Don't nobody want the night to come, just want the day forever. Run like highway. Turn ourselves invisible when mama calls. Don't take that ball all angry the day done left you, boy. That street light not hot yet. Ignore the glow for the sting of pop rocks in our cheeks and big league tiring our chew. Ten nine eight seven six. this time when mama calls. Seems more ambulance in her throat. More flashing light in her eyes. More than just halogen flickering bulb on concrete. She says our names like they are blood moons in a clear sky that no one wants to see. Like a routine turned into red mouth outcry, a frenzy of our shadowy feet cockroaching from the asphalt towards our mother's arms, unaware. Five, four, three, two, run. The unknowing left that night. We watched their feet turn Rodney soccer ball. Police no longer a place to run when lost. Police run longer or be a lost place. Colored lips gushing a bloody drink, more thirsty for the darkness than the sun, and we. A talk outline number needing to be stomped. Um, so this book kind of, and I know we'll probably get into this, but this book kind of for me was a, like a vomiting of reaction and of interpreting things that happened in my own life when it came to police brutality and police interactions, as well as looking at the world around me and um, just, I mean, honestly, just reacting. And so it kind of all stemmed from this idea that started around the time that Trayvon Martin was killed. And I found myself in multiple conflicting emotions, you know, um, one as a mom and then, and knowing what it's like, you know, to lose a child and then other as a black woman and a, and a black person in America. So um, this is for Trayvon. I remember the iced tea we used to brew on my mother's back porch, just outside her garden how it steeped against the ground till deep-seated, how the sticky sweet Alabama honey stuck to our everywhere. I wonder how hard they had to scrub to get the Trayvon off. Was it calm George calling it in? Dream of paradise under an Arizona rainbow, sepia ignorant bliss. Whisper under breath if we stack flowers at every site, this world can be eaten again. I stand here in the wilderness of kitchen, the linoleum tiles a dry bubbling beneath my bare feet, 
Our nursery is quiet tonight for all the right reasons. The area of Crib Mobile plays soundtrack to a muted television. Over a casket of fruit swirling before a bite, under the crescendo of a kettle, and the most shameful whispers say, I'm so glad we had a girl. Um, but the reality is, is that like gender doesn't discriminate in that way, or right? death doesn't know gender, as you know, most things shouldn't probably know. Um, and for us, we have to constantly be willing to reinvent ourselves to survive and to live. And I found myself really being reinvented by becoming a mother, especially of two children, um, especially one being a black boy. Even though my daughter's in just as much danger, she just won't be on the news. That's kind of how it works. Um, and I didn't write about him for a long time. And the first piece that kind of fell out after him um, was called Release. And I'm going to read that for you. When I decided to become a mother, people warned me how hard it would be that Having a child is like forever having your heart wander outside of your body. But after birthing two hatchlings into the gulf, I can tell you that I've come to know motherhood is not being any less than human. It is more about learning how to envelop the sea. It is watching your skin soft to slick to sucker to cradle. It is training your blind spots for the infinity of sight lines. Each pregnancy surge of hormones turning you more cephalopod. And if I never believed in evolution, my daughter confirmed me a sea monster. My son made me more Ursula, more sea witch in drag. My confidence has been a constant camouflage. My spirit seen the bottom of the ocean more times than I want to admit. But my children give the poor unfortunate of my soul venom and a song. Give me a reason to plot and scheme us into a better sea. Made me unearth myself from the sand every dawn and dream. Did you know that an octopus has three hearts? One to take all the rejection life sins and the other two to make sure that it has something to breathe for. Their midnight risings often feel of palpitation. A tangled sleep is me wrestling with myself. Their most annoying parts are when I see too much of my ink in them. The world has tried to tell me that I can't have it all, the abyss and the surface too. I respond with my children's constricting laughter. We tighten the choke, the doubt that we can be this big and bigger. Don't you know that a kraken is merely a woman with too much to lose to the sea? That if you come for her offspring, she will drag you under. Did you know that a mother has enough strength to swallow a ship whole? Davy Jones is just a woman after too many miscarriages. I have a heart in that locker too. I know what it's like to be a mile long myth. To have to balance being visible with just being. A bubble gurgling through self-conscious waters. But I wouldn't trade a limb for them. Wouldn't beg for bones or legs. I'm, I'm happy drowning my sadness in their saltwater cure-all. At the end of the day, when we have been stretched to distant oceans, when the pirates of work and sleep and this stage have tried to steal our unison chest dump and propulsion, we be devilfish, be the things mermaid fear and envy, make man into nightmare and expectation into sinkhole. We are not hard. We are an eight-legged doomsday, a unity town terror, our tentacles tangling us betwixt one another. Motherhood is a monstrosity waiting to surge. It is a strangling safety. It is knowing that you have all the reasons to whirlpool and you are just waiting for the moment to release. Um, I think I got one more. I think that's right, Jimmy. I'm, gonna, I'm hoping this will work. <laughs> that's what I got. Uh, so I feel like you have to come to a point where you just make some decisions for yourself, you know, like you just decide things aren't going to, aren't going to be here, you know, aren't going to stop here. I'm going to, I'm going to make them something more. And, um, there's a piece in the, in the book called the pact that I really get to read. So I'm going to read it tonight. Um, which is just like that, that thing, right. That need to, to understand what's going on around you and to still find a way through it, to still find a decision in your mind that's going to say, I still survive. Unfortunately, sometimes that comes at the cost of other people. Um, slit your wrists now. Blend your broken with mine. Us be a family. Have a pact. Sealed in blood, you will do it. Whichever of us they come for next won't run or cower. See the red scope light on you. See how your chest welcomes a sniper's round. Know how much power lives in blackout. We can't shy away. Cut deep into darkness, round the tendons and muscle inside your cheek. Kiss me. Death has a badge and a reason to brandish. Hurry, this urgency is a now kind of thing. We all gotta go. Sometimes it's now, it's just promised more swiftly. 
It's now and now. We don't know, no, never. Speak our names. Say we are the same or fuck us. Hope it's you. Just so it ain't me. I promise I'll end with something lighter. <laughs> it is what it is. You know, right? That, that's where you got to go. That's where you got to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the things that I've always kind of admired about you and your performance and your poetry is that you've always been kind of a powerhouse. Of, oh, thank you, uh, uh, both in your performance and in your writing. Um, now I do have to ask, cause I've known you for years and I feel like only recently did I realize that deep was an acronym. <laughs> it's okay. It's what does okay. what does deep stand for? Uh, so do you, okay, I'm gonna give you like the full thing. So I had this name that I created for myself when I was very young, okay. like eighth grade. And I was like, what do I want people to cheer from the stage? Like when I'm done, like, do I want it to be like, ah, she's amazing. And I was like, no, I want it to be like profound. Like I want it to be like deep, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, Ooh, that's nice. <laughs> um, and then as I like got older, I was like, you know, it, it, it can't just be this vain thing that says like, you're going to cheer for me wherever I am. But, um, <laughs> you know, success for me was defined by a lot of other people before it was defined by me. And I wanted to have something that reminded me that, you know, I'm here for a purpose. God put me on this earth. And so that's a long answer to say it means determined to excel in everything promised that I told myself I was going to be focused on the things that God promised for me and made me for in this world. And it wouldn't be necessarily chasing money or chasing fame. You know, if those things came, that would be great. But I really felt like I had a higher purpose in the work and in the craft that, you know, I was blessed to be able to work in. So that, that was eighth grade when you came up with that? Yeah. I mean, the acronym, I think, like, has probably changed a couple times as to what it means. But it was always centered kind of around the same thing. I mean, and clearly it worked. Uh, you know? <laughs> it was working. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think it also reminds me, you know, every time I step on stage that I'm not stepping on there for myself and that I, you know, maintain some kind of humility and knowing that, like, what I'm good at is I put words together, y'all. Like, it's really, you know, like, it, it's that simple. And I think, you know, sometimes we're, it's easy to let your head fill up, especially if you're winning slams and things like that. But mm. at the heart of it, like, I'm just putting words together. So, mm. you know, remember that there is a grace in that. Well, your ability to put words together got you to a place that is that few have gotten. Uh, yeah. You were the Houston Poet Laureate. You were the first African-American Houston Poet Laureate. Tell black people. Uh, <laughs> uh, so all this month we've been focusing on kind of like the business of poetry. Um, and so for anybody that's watching that doesn't know, like what does it mean to be like the Poet Laureate of something or somewhere? Uh, and what are some of the things that you accomplished in your role that you're most proud of? Yeah, absolutely. So the Poet Laureate position in essence, is like an ambassador of poetry for a government issue, a government entity, whether that's a city or um, a state or a country, right? Because there's one definitely for the country. Mm -hmm. um, but they're kind of appointed by a local leadership, and um, they represent poetry for for a set amount of time. So my term was two years. I think you know in Houston it's two years, in Boston it's like four, which is crazy. That's a, like a really long time. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I hit it full throttle, and I think four years I'd have like tapped out. <laughs> Year three, I don't, I don't think I could have done it. So shout out to Portia for that. Um, <laughs> um, but I think you know for us it's it's really being able to make literacy and poetry visible to take it off of the shelf of elitism and say that it is an everyday thing that is an accessible tool that we can use to communicate, to leverage ideas, to connect. Um, that's the goal of the poet laureate position. As far as what I did with it was a little bit different just because I was the first performance poet that had the position in my city. Um, most people kind of came from, you know, a traditional publishing background. And so they would do like book collections and those are definitely necessary and there's no shade in those. It's just I took a different path. So I decided to uh, say yes to everything for two years. That, that was my goal, promise to myself, which is why I ran myself crazy. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I got to do things like I got to collaborate with the Houston Ballet and create, you know, dance piece that went up after Hurricane Harvey to celebrate Houston's resilience. I got to create a opening video for the Houston Rockets season, which that was their best season, can I say? And that's probably, <laughs> and they probably need to come on oh, yeah. hire me back, right? <laughs> Um, and, um, and then I actually got to perform on the Texans 50 yard line for 37, 38,000 youth, which is like probably yeah. the thing that I was the most mm -hmm. excited about. 
is being able to have like young people fill a stadium and to listen to poetry, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's insane. Like I came outside and it was like thunder through my body. Like it's just, <laughs> uh, you know, things like that make me feel like the work is necessary and relevant. And, now you said that you were the first uh, spoken word artist to be poet laureate of Houston. Yeah. Uh, because, and that, that's the thing that most poet laureates have been traditionally have been from the book world. Yeah. Um, was there a stir in the city or in the community about that? It's really funny. Um, there was kind of two things that made all the headlines go right for me. You know, there was slam poet, which I hate that term, but slam poet <laughs> becomes poet laureate. And then there was like black poet becomes you know, like, like <laughs> kind of, it was like one of two things were kind of running. All the poet laureates in my city have been women. So I wasn't going to get anywhere with that. Like that didn't matter. Right. <laughs> but, um, but so I kind of saw it. I think the thing that worked for me is, you know, doing these kind of large dedications and things for the city, you know, like the state of the city where there's like 14,000 people in a ballroom. For me, that's like, you know, hey, it's a morning. It's a Monday morning, you know, where some people it's just not a comfortable place for them to be in front of all those people. And so there was a real asset in being able to be comfortable you know, kind of being thrown to the wolves in some ways to be on camera all the time, you know, um, to be able to kind of just jump in and do it and not have to have a second thought about it, I think was definitely a benefit for me. Mm-hmm. Now, you, um, you know, I've seen you read from this this new book of yours, which is uh, the work in it is not new. You know, you've talked about how, <laughs> let me just put that banner up real quick. Boom, go buy her book. Um, yeah. The, the work in it is, is not necessarily new. You know, it's poems that you've written over the past number of years. Um, and like you said, you are, you do have a stage background. Um, and I've heard you say like, I'm gonna perform the stage version of it, not the page version of it. How was that uh, transition of taking your work that lived on stage and then transitioning it onto a page? Yeah, I think um, tricky always. It's probably one of my my weakest points, I think, or that's not true, not anymore, but I think I had to definitely learn how to do it. I had to learn mostly like, what do I want people to come back to right? Like over and over, because that's what you do in a book, right? Whereas on stage, you get kind of this one hit or quitter chance to like harpoon somebody through the soul and like hope it sticks, right? So I think, um, you know, just thinking through that I had the time for people to like let things ruminate and and figuring out how do I want to layer that into the text was a big thing. This book actually also has performance pieces in it too that I can't read out loud which I was really intentional about having pieces in the book that had to have multiple voices, you know, like, so group piece, mm. just trapped in the middle, like, <laughs> you know, um, that people have like, are you going to perform this? And I'm like, how can I do that? I need two other voices. Like that's not going to work. You know, mm-hmm. um, my book release, I actually did to dance. I didn't do a traditional reading. I had everything acted out in dance and I was reading kind of off stage. Um, and so I really wanted it to, you know, everything I do is such a hybrid and I'm, leaning more into that not as like a flaw in the ways that I think but that like my Aquarian scatterbrain is worth something right (laughs) (laughs) and and being able to conceptualize how things that don't normally meet and mix together can mix together very well Mm -hmm. and how long did it take to put the whole thing together the book yeah first draft was six months um, it took me another four years to edit with like edit, submit, publishing deal was probably about another four years. So the original like bleh, of all the poems was actually really fast. It just was the going back and saying like, OK, that was cool. And you could probably throw it on the stage. But like, let's be more intentional and let's edit it down, mm-hmm. um, which which is why I get frustrated when people are like, I wrote this poem on a receipt this morning and i'm like oh fam like you could have it could have been so much better had you left it till tomorrow you know what I mean? like, let it marinate a little you know right? so you know um yeah so so definitely it's kind of a, a longer trek is that usually your writing format or style where it just kind of like blah all comes out and then you know go back and ruminate for, over it later for the most part you know i think it it really helps I honestly think the poet laureate position pushed a lot of that on me Mm. um, or out of me because it would. So I'm going to tell you a story about the mayor, Mayor Turner. I hope that you hear this because I'm I'm still (laughs) mad at you for this. No, I'm just joking. Um, 
I'm not <laughs> mad. I'm not mad. He knows I love him. Uh, but there was a time when, you know, I, I kept asking, are we going to need a poem for the, the like swearing in of the poet laureate? And everyone's like, nope, nope, you don't need it. Nope, you don't need it. We're good. We're good. We're going to do this fast. It's going to be quick. And 15 minutes before the announcing, they were like, we're going to need a poem. <laughs> and, we need it, and we need it to be like custom about today and about being the poet lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, fam, for real? Like, I've been asking you for a month and you didn't need anything from me. So it kind of was this thing where like from then on out, I really realized that that was going to be a skill that I was going to need, that I was going to be dropped in situations time after time again. There was like, and we want new words from Pete, right? Like... <laughs> Or, you know, I published something about Hurricane Harvey and then Houston Chronicle hit me up and they're like, we don't want that same poem. We want a new poem. And it was just mm -hmm. like, okay, so I, I got used to being able to kind of like, you know, I think writing is very much a muscle. And it, I think that a lot of that was training that muscle to be able to kind of get a good first draft that maybe is better, a better first draft than most people come up with because they just don't, haven't trained that muscle. Mm -hmm. And then to be able to say like, if I have time to go back to it, I can definitely like, polish it up and make it better but if not you know now you're sometimes about, it had to go about training the muscle but what about training the editors yeah uh the other people out there who are demanding that you have a poem like a new poem and to say hey i don't just write these things in the morning you know or i don't just that they take a process take a time yeah i i absolutely agree with that um in my poet laureateship i did not say that enough I think I just, I went with improv and just said, yes, and I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> I was like, yes, and I'll, yeah, yeah, we can tell the end. Yeah. And I'll have it in two hours. <laughs> you know, I remember even before I performed on the Texas stadiums, I thought that I was going to be able to read the poem um, because it was a custom piece and I had like 500 other custom pieces and I got there two hours before the show and they're like, oh no, we definitely need you memorized and liked. <laughs> and I and so like no this is this is four hours before the show I have a one hour workshop in the middle of it that I have a thirty minute ride to and from right so like the time is dwindling right like the window and I was like okay well we'll be memorized and um, I recorded it on my phone as a voice recording and I turned mm -hmm. my radio to me just spitting the poem the whole way there and the whole way back and the whole hour in between. And when I got on stage, I like just, and the words did what they need to. I could not tell you what that poem said now for my life. <laughs> but for that moment, right? Yes, and it you worked. Had, you had it. I totally, I totally relate because I think, you know, many people have cracked the joke that Chibi writes two poems a year. Um, <laughs> but this, this, uh, this idea of like external forces, like for pushing you to yeah. create new work uh, that has happened a lot in this pandemic uh, to where it's kind of like, oh, so I'm, I am generating work because there's something out there that's like pushing me and driving me to create this work. Yeah. Um, now with your book, there's definitely, uh, it seems like external forces that were driving the content of this piece. You know, you talk a lot about like race relations. It's very, very prominent in your poetry and in your book. How are you right now? How is How are you processing what's currently happening in the world? Yeah, I think, you know, prior to me having a really honest conversation with my daughter, I think I was really not well because I was trying to figure out how do I shield this kid? You know, I was changing the channel fast or like, we're only gonna watch stream things so you don't see the news. and. Mm -hmm. And I think I was really trying to hold on to some facade that things were okay for their sake. But, you know, my daughter asked me, like, who's Brianna Taylor? And it was just like, nope, there, there it is, right? Like, we're not getting away from this. And I think just sitting down and being able to have a really honest conversation with her about the world and about how the world sees her and how the world will see her when she walks out of these doors mm -hmm. and how, you know, I'm going to hold her hand anyways and I'm going to be there anyways um, has been, like, very sobering. You know, uh, definitely I have to limit the amount of news. I only watch the news if Trevor Noah says it. So I don't know if that's really bad. <laughs> Oh my God, uh, I do the same. I do the same. It's right? Trevor like, Noah and John Oliver for me. Yeah, Trevor I'll Noah. I'll too. get a Stephen Colbert every once in a while, you know, but like <laughs> if they're not saying it, I don't really think I should know it, you know, yeah. or unless it comes through like so big that it hits Instagram or something where I'm scrolling, but just really being good to myself and saying like, I'm going to ride my bike and plant things instead. I'm going to, you know, like I'm just going to self care a whole lot more. I think has been a lot really, really helpful in getting through all of this. Now that, that P sorry, the, um, 
that opportunity came up for you to write that about that talking to your daughter um and it appeared in texas monthly yeah and uh what was the response to that <laughs> the hate mail um <laughs> i got a lot of retweets you know it was like the ninth i think the ninth highest read article in texas monthly for the week so, you know, kind of hit their like scoreboard, which was great because I kind of got, you know, the editors hitting me up and like, yeah, your piece is amazing. Apple News picked it up, which was great. Um, and then I got the first email that was like, instead of talking to your daughter about police, maybe you should be talking to her about how she should be respectful. And I was like, OK, cool. You know, and, and that one I think I let slide. I was just like, I'm not going to I'm not going to do this today. Um, the next one that responded that said I was weaponizing my blackness. Um, I decided to respond to, which I would not advise anyone respond to things because the stamina of a troll is much stronger than you ever will know. And so though my, um, my, I loved my response. It was very timely and it definitely said things like, I know words are hard and it's hard for you to understand things. Um, but guess what? You read that wrong. And, um, I hope that you enjoy your civil war reenactments and your clan rally. And I'll talk to you soon. Mm. Um, it resulted in like seven other emails following trying to dismount to what I had said, which I, I was like, okay, now you're exhausting my resources. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, for me, this is the first time I've kind of been confronted with that. And I, I instantaneously understood why Tennessee Coates doesn't want to do book signings. Right. Like I was like, <laughs> I know now you don't want to do with these people. Like, mm -hmm. um, which is not to say I won't do book signings, but it is to say, you know, like, I think that there is a limit and a boundary that you have to set for yourself and, yeah. So for me, it was like, don't read the comments and um, and don't answer the emails with weird subject lines. That's uh, what they always say. Do not read the comments. Don't don't even go look at it. Yeah. But they're, so, they're... <laughs> so you 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 have a daughter. I you have a son, son too. Yes, you have a daughter yeah. and a son who are how old? Pardon, three and seven. Mm, those ripe ages. Sure, the terrible threes is what we call it. Two, forget two is great compared to three. Uh, Eddie's like, wait till they become teenagers. I don't want to. No, I told my daughter that I'm going to freeze her and put her in a shrink ray and keep her at 12. So, yep. How is, uh, how is parenting in the pandemic? Crazy. Yeah. You know, even before our district said that kids were not coming back, I was like, my kids ain't coming back. So <laughs> I was like, I ain't going to be there. The kids ain't going to be there. Whatever that means for my life, I'll figure it out. But we ain't coming. Um, I, I would say that I've given a lot more grace than I. I've done a lot of things I didn't think I was going to do, like buy a bounce house. <laughs> you know, I never thought I would own an inflatable, but Time said that I needed to own an inflatable, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of screen time. There's a lot of, you know, um, crafts and arts and arts and craft projects going on in our house. My daughter now does weekly uh, museum installations of Lego art. So that's fun. Mm -hmm. um, my kids are definitely creatives. And so I got stuck with some pretty good partners in the home. You know, my, my new coworkers is what I call them. And um, they're, they're pretty good aside from walking in on me going to the bathroom. You know? <laughs> You're like, mommy needs her me time. Go, go to the oh, bathroom. Both of my kids know the word privacy. I don't, mm, privacy. <laughs> what about the balancing of your work and your creative side yeah. with full-time parent educating? Yeah. What is that? It's in, it's insane. You know, um, we have a really great network. So their grandmothers still come by. You know, my mom was here earlier today teaching my daughter how to sew. So I got to like say, I'm going to go take a nap for an hour. Bye. Um, and my mom, my husband's mom took them uh, a couple weeks ago for, for the weekend and just kind of let us breathe. So that's been great. But the day to day, you know, it's it is nonstop from the time that we are waking up because we don't get up, right? Like a child slaps <laughs> us in the face and is like, waffles, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> from that time to the time that we kind of collapse on each other watching, you know, Chrisley Knows Best in the bedroom because <laughs> I can't <laughs> stop watching that show for some weird reason. Um, and so, you know, it is, it is nonstop. I think for me, my kids know that I'm an artist. You know, I make jewelry. My kids sit and, and paint and work with me. Um, when I write, my kids, you know, sit under me and read and write, which is difficult sometimes. But I just try to carve out like, you know, one to two hours a day where I sneak off to my room and my husband's a really, really great, really great partner. 
and being able to say like, I know you really need to get that done. So sneak away. You know, I'm working on another stage production right now. Um, after the opera that I released in March, um, I really just kind of fell in love with being able to see a larger production that I've crafted go up on stage. And so I've been kind of leaning in that direction. You know, I haven't really been writing as many poems as I have stories and, and, um, you know, and, and stage work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. now, so the writers are in the, during the pandemic have become much more intentional about their space. Yeah. Uh, is that, did that happen with you too? Like do you um, have a writing space, uh, a work time, a writing time? Time is when I can take it. That's, that's no, there's no time. I'm not going to lie and say, yes, I've cracked it. No. Um, <laughs> a space though. I've always had a studio. So like I'm in my, I'm in my office now, which is like the shrine to me. If you look, it's like, but yeah, I've always had a, a, a designated space, a really nice chair, you know, um, where my laptop sits and I can kind of close the door and you know bring the screaming down maybe like three decibels to mm -hmm. kind of get into my own space so that it's it's beneficial yeah we we have we have a rule here in the house where it's like my, my husband has his room and i have my room and like when the door is closed it yeah. means we're working it's you know like essentially like we're not at home we're in the office yep you know? knock if you absolutely need something and yes. it's so important to create those those boundaries in those spaces especially when you do kind of work on your own schedule when you can sort of thing. Yeah, um, it's a little harder with a three-year-old, but yeah. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't care at all. Uh, neither does the dog. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Cookie. Uh, so I want to dive into that that you briefly mentioned, uh, which is the, the idea of working in other mediums. Um, for those that don't know, you wrote an opera. Uh, you, you, you wrote a play and are writing a new one. So I'm, I wrote the opera. I've written multiple plays. They just haven't gone up because I'm scared. I was scared of myself. Uh -huh. um, and then I'm working on a choreo poem right now. Okay. Talk yeah. talk a little bit about what how that process is different, like writing in opera versus writing a book or poetry. In yeah. You know, a libretto is very poetic, but it is, um, you have to think about things like the sounds of words. It sounds stupid, but like you don't think about sounds, but things like do lines end in an open consonant where a singer could hold it longer, or is it a narrow consonant where they're going to have a harder time pronouncing? Mm -hmm. um, are there like random bits of alliteration that are going to become trippy to sing that normally could be spoken out, you know, and have that kind of rhythm and then how do you artificiate that rhythm into a song, right? When, especially when you're not composing the music, how do you figure out how to how to build it into the phrasing so that even if the composer stretches things out, you're still gonna get the rhythms and the motions. And so um, I played classical piano for like six or seven years. And so I think that that really helped aid me in kind of thinking through the musicality of the words. Um, and it's probably why I write the way that I do as well. And so it definitely was different it wasn't instead of like, I'm going to take a poem that's very like one moment narrow in and expound upon it. It turned into, I'm going to take a moment and figure out how do I tell that moment? How do I build that tension? Right. So in Marion's song, which is the opera I wrote, there's a scene where Marion is getting ready to go overseas and her accompanist is getting left behind. And it was like, what do they say in their final moments together? That's history probably never recorded, but I can build into this really beautiful moment. Um, where they're able to like honor that they're growing apart and still work and praise each other's growth without getting in the way of each other, you know? And so I think thinking through the emotionality of things and things like that are kind of how I lean when I start writing for stage, for screen. I have a short film that I'm um, trying to shop right now. And so just being able to kind of like think about how the work lives bigger and broader maybe than the page does sometimes. Hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah, the uh, speaking of different genres is the the uh, last time that I no the second to last time I saw you we saw each other at AWP I think yeah. but um, uh, I was at the Texas Book Festival and uh, they had a breakfast at the Texas Monthly offices. That's um, a good breakfast. Very very often type tacos. That's a whole other discussion. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, let's not. Can we can we not talk about the tacos? No. You want to talk about tacos? I don't know. I love tacos. I don't know that I would call that. What they have. Okay. We're not talking about tacos. Okay. There was okay. something <laughs> very often, very not taco-ish about them. Yes. All I right. call them tortilla sandwiches. Because <laughs> I feel like that is a more accurate description that, of what they yes. are. There was food. Yeah. There was, was food. Was, it was edible. There was mimosas, too. I didn't get one, but that <laughs> I did not either. <laughs> 
and, and, I, and I ran into you and I was with my son. Um, so I want to thank you because you gave me some great cred with him. Because all of a sudden he's like, you know somebody here too? And she's like, heard of Houston? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. And you were talking to um, uh, one an, an editor for Texas Monthly and all that stuff was going on. And then soon thereafter, I started to see you pop up on Texas Monthly. Now, are the, were those two things related? Yeah, in some ways. You know, I had already worked with Texas Monthly before doing their Texas Monthly live event and got to perform live. So they were kind of enamored with me. And so it was easy to kind of transition into doing. I did some animated work with them. They took a poem and animated it for me, um, which is up on their site and my site as well. And then after that, kind of turned into them saying, well, you know, Texas Monthly never publishes poems. Can you send us a poem? And I was like, sure, no. And so instead <laughs> of sending a poem, I sent an essay. And they were like, wow, that was so well written. Do you have anything else to say? And I was like, oh, I have all the things to say if you give me <laughs> a foot in the door. And so it's been a really great relationship um, to be able to, you know, kind of skip the pitching process in a lot of the times mm -hmm. and to just reach out to an editor and say, hey, I have a thought. Can I send you a draft and let me know if you guys want to publish it and then give me money, mm -hmm. which is always good. Money. <laughs> now, you, uh, speaking of uh, essays and hybrid works, right now, you uh, are finished, I, I believe, uh, creating a new work, right? Yeah, Talk yeah. a little bit about that. What's, what's this new this new work that's in the process? Yes, it is sitting with agents right now to see who is going to represent it. Um, mm -hmm. But it it is a analysis of Black womanhood through mythology, right? I wanted to I started thinking through, actually, this is because of Jackson Neal. I should say that. He decided to have a podcast called um, Myth Stories or Myth City, I think it's called. And he invited me on and he's like, you know, what are the myths you grew up with in, in your culture? And I was like, Psh, I don't know. Like, Black people don't have myths like that. Like, Anansi? Like, what you want me to say? <laughs> and so, like, I said yes and because that's, you know, that's what we do, right? And so I remember sitting in the parking lot and thinking, like, I have nothing to say. Like, what am I going to say? Like, I'm still here. Like, it's been two weeks and I still have nothing. And then I was like, you know, my mom always used to say she had eyes in the back of her head. Like, that's mythological, right? Uh -huh. And so I started talking about that idea. And then I was like, well, why doesn't that myth exist? Like, why doesn't, why is there not a myth of, like, how women got eyes in the back of their head? to stare down their children, right? Like, that's for Black women, right? And so I decided, well, you know, maybe I should just write it. And so I wrote this story about, you know, um, how Black women arrived at getting eyes in the back of their head. And then I was like, that transitioned so well into some of the memoirs I had about my mom and, you know, hiding on the top of the toilet to whoop me in the shower because, you know, I outran her during the day. And yeah, my mom is gangster, y'all. Like, she is gangster, right? Uh -huh. And so... Uh, it just turned into this thing where I was able to take moments of my life in memoir and blend them with these other, you know, ex explanations of things my aunts would say and my grandmothers would say. And like, where did all that come from and what does it mean? And and even, then even thinking like, what do I get to make and shape and shift her a, a culture and a generations that come after me that I can start stories that will live even longer than me? And so it, it's kind of a, a hybrid of memoir, of poetry, and of um, mythology, which is different and and weird and great. Yeah. I love it. Now you mentioned that it's it's you're shopping it around uh, with agents again. It's like s shifting back to like the business of poetry. Like, yeah. what does that mean? Shopping it around. Like, what does that process entail? Yeah. So I mean, you have a few different ways to go with a book. This is considered a fiction book, even though it has memoir in it. Because mm -hmm. if it's nonfiction, I have to write an eighty-page book proposal, and I didn't want to do that. So I was like, it'll be fiction. Uh, um, <laughs> so the, I mean, the mythology is kind of whatever. And so um, you can either just go straight to a publisher. Usually indie publishers will take book submissions straight on. Mm -hmm. I did an indie publisher for my last book and I love them and it's great. But I also wanted to figure out how do I take that next step to a national level that mm -hmm. they're building a platform for, but maybe you haven't quite arrived at. And so then it turns into querying agents. Um, and then if an agent likes what they see in kind of a one letter, sum one page summary of your work, then they'll ask to see a full manuscript. Then if they like the manuscript, then they'll work with you to get it ready to sell it to a publisher. Um, the publisher buys it. And then it kind of takes off of that route of figuring out how do you package it, market it, edit it, and get it onto the shelves. Mm. So that's where, you know, four years yeah. of your life goes. <laughs> that's where four years of your life goes. Yeah. So... But the good thing is, you know, even while that's happening, I have this kind of collection that's sitting over here and I'm already starting to work on the next thing, right? Mm -hmm. So 
one thing I hate that I did to myself was after Newsworthy, I just wanted to baby it and hold it and cradle it. And I didn't want to do anything else until it got picked up. And I wasted so much time that I could have been creating the next thing, you know? So I've kind of learned from that mistake and said, yeah, this can be my baby, but it can like sit in the, in the little playpen, right? Like, and I can move on to mm -hmm. managing some other project. And if there's one thing I know about Aquarius is, is that you got to have multiple projects going <laughs> on at the same time. We were talking earlier, for those of you who don't oh. know, Deep is an Aquarius. I am. My husband's an Aquarius. So I understand the way that brain kind of goes everywhere. Yeah, my husband hates how I clean because I clean like three things in one room and then I skip to another room and then I go, <laughs> he's like, why didn't you finish? And I was like, well, a little bit everywhere is better than one room clean, right? <laughs> No. <laughs> See, I'm the kind of person that like as I'm cooking, I'm cleaning. So like as soon as like I put the plate on the table, the kitchen's already done. Right. You know, we can sit and eat. And what are you? I'm a Gemini. Okay. That's um, right. Because Gemini's, yeah. I know yeah. that. Uh, and Aquarius are not like that. Uh, you know? <laughs> I don't know what to say. I'm just not. No, I'm not. I know my mom, she my mom's a Libra. She tries to be that. Like she's like, just wash while you cook. And I'm like, yeah, I totally was doing that. And then my food burned. Like, I can't, I can't do that. It doesn't yeah. work. You got to do one thing, one thing. And then you see the next, and then it's over here. And then you see the next, and then it's over here. And by the time that you realize it, your child is now six years old. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So, so we've got, yeah, multiple projects, right? Four years uh, waiting for Newsworthy to come together. Um. I'm trying to keep track of exactly how many pr different projects that was. Oh no, that's not going to happen. No, <laughs> that's cute though that you tried that. <laughs> um, no, Newsworthy was like I was editing Newsworthy while I was writing the libretto. Okay. And then I was premiering, premiering the opera and workshopping the opera while I was writing this next collection. Mm -hmm. So I try to tell myself two large projects a year. That doesn't include essays, po individual poems that are submitted, commission work, like it doesn't do that, but just one book, one stage production written a year and then how they actually come to light, that's different. So, you know, like Newsworthy got a new life in being picked up in Germany and it's going to debut again, you know, as a translation next fall, which is great and wonderful and yay, all the things, <laughs> right? Um, but it, it kind of extended what I felt like was going to be kind of this premiere and living on, you know, in the ways that it does. Mm. to kind of like giving it a brand new life. And so, and so did the pandemic, right? So where I was going to be shopping this opera now to, you know, Opera America and living, you know, in other theaters around the nation that gets shifted to kind of land the same time I'm supposed to be, you know, they being in Germany, right? Mm. So like, now it's like, it's going to look like an explosion of things all at once when in reality, you know, things kind of were already in motion in some ways um, for years, even at times. Mm -hmm. Do you think yeah. it was easier for the other projects to come to fruition because of the first one getting published. Yes. Hands so, down. Kind of like yes. a, it opens the floodgates kind of thing. So like, yeah. So something about, you know, and, and my friends told me like, don't go with an indie publisher, you know, do a book prize and win. And I was like, I did that for four years sitting around, sending it to stuff and it just wasn't moving, you know? And I am so happy that I went with Boomsday. Like they, yeah, they they were smaller and they're local, but they were on their grind. Like they went to bat for me in ways that I never expected they would, and they really did give me a perspective about my work that I don't think I would have gotten from anyone else. And so, you know, it, some people just take off and they they're like the biggest thing tomorrow, and some people have to like kind of step up, you know, like one at a time, take a little bit bigger. And I think my career has really been kind of climbing the stairs. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel similarly, um, I had a manuscript that I, that I got published, but that manuscript was sent to, sent to contests, uh, sent other places, given no's a few places before it finally, like, you know, got a publisher. Yeah. And I was tired of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was tired of the book and those poems and stuff. Did you feel the same way? Like, um, Oh, yeah. I mean, poems from Newsworthy have existed since 2015. Hmm. Like some of the pieces, right? So yeah, some of them I'm like, please don't make me say that again. But <laughs> I realize that for for a lot of people, it's their first time hearing it, and especially in the wave of what's happening right now, they become reborn, right? 
Mm-hmm. And so I, I often tell students and I tell myself the same thing as like, how many times does Aretha Franklin have to sing respect? Right? Like you can read this poem again. You really can. She's been singing it for decades. You, you're you going to be okay. Right? <laughs> and so I think as long as you kind of come to it with that understanding that like it might be brand new for someone else, um, you know, you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Now, outside of these, these big projects, you also work a lot with, uh, with the youth. You, you're, you're a mentor and an educator. Uh, I was on uh, Coog Slam's uh, virtual uh, open mic recently, and I dropped your name, and everybody just exploded into tears. Yeah, sweeties. Talk a little bit about the the work that you do in in your community with with youth, both you know college and and below. Yeah, you know, I I was a coach for Metaphor Houston for about seven years. Um, after I transitioned from that, it just turned into kind of making myself available. I run um, a collection or a summit called the Colony Summit. That's a free resource for writers of color in the city quarterly can meet and just gain resources. And so just trying to always figure out a way to kind of reach back to put myself in a position. You know, I, I believe that I get indoors and I might, you know, get get into a brand new open door, but I hold it open for the people who are coming behind me. And so any way that I can read a poem or that I can um, get feedback or, you know, I'm the one that people catch at an open mic in a corner afterwards. And they're like, can I read you this thing I wrote on a napkin? Right? Um, <laughs> and I think that those moments are important. They're, they're important to say like, yes, this is good and it can be better. And this is the way it can be better. Mm-hmm. And if you're willing to grow with that, you know, I'm willing to help you. Mm-hmm. Now, are you originally from Houston? I'm not. I'm a transplant. I'm originally from Cali. California, <laughs> eh? Um, I moved here in 2006 uh, because God told me to get up and move. I had nothing. I had no friends, no family, no job. Um, and it took me about a month of living in hotels in my car to land on my feet. And since then, you know, Houston has grown into being my home. You know, I had kids here. My husband says, once you have a Texan, like push it out your body. Then you're a Texan. <laughs> Um, he says the same thing about being Cajun, which I don't know how I became Cajun, but I'm that too somehow. <laughs> I don't know how that works. Houston, Louisiana, or Bayou. Uh, nope, nope. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, you know, Houston is definitely, I feel like where I grew up. I moved here, you know, I, I wondered why my parents were so weird about me getting up and moving to Houston by myself with nothing. Like, and then I realized, oh, I was 23. You idiot. Like, you were so young, right? That was crazy. Um, but, you know, so so my adult life, I've really come into myself here in Houston. And so it is it is home. You know, it is very much home, even though it might not be where I'm born. Mm-hmm. Now, where, but where does your love of lemonade come from? That's, that's where I'm um, <laughs> This love of lemonade has permeated so far back. It definitely has to be California. That, that one, it has to be. My okay. grandfather used to be like, a connoisseur like he was like nah there's not enough sugar in that (laughs) um that's not enough lemon he's like it's got to get that right in you right like it's got to do that to you and i've like fallen in love with lemonade so now i am bougie i am i am bougie about tacos i'm bougie about lemonade those are kind of my bougie (laughs) things like where i'm just mm, tortillas nah tortilla sandwiches man Uh tortilla sandwiches exactly you know like i i will be i'll be completely upfront. It's delicious, but it's, it, it's, it's, it ain't Mexican food. It ain't a taco. <laughs> Fair, right? Just like I, I'm going to go on the limb and say, I don't think Tex-Mex is Mexican food. I'm going to say it. I said it. It's not, I said it's it. Okay. It's Tex-Mex. It's, it's 100% Tex-Mex. Tex-Mex. And um, so moving from California, where like Tijuana was like two hours away, you know, like, and now I'm like, oh, this is new. <laughs> so do you do that that southern thing of like half lemonade half sweet tea or is that just a bastardization no the arnold palmer is real okay but it is a different drink right like okay. it it morphs into something else that is not lemonade okay so, and what about adding like uh, strawberry or pomegranate or it depends on how it's done okay if it's infused i'm okay with it but if it's just like you plopped a, a, a strawberry in there, no, nah, that's not. No. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna roll with that. <laughs> this is a whole subject of conversation. And then, and then I'm telling you, limonada. See, limonada is another thing because <laughs> so, so check this, right? Like I love um, there's this place in Houston called La Tapatia, which is like my favorite thing ever. And I'm like, I went in, and I'm like, like una canada limonada, right? Like that's great. And I drank it, and I was like, 
that's not lemonade, but damn, it's good, right? Like, <laughs> I'll take it, right? But I don't know. I don't know in the scale of lemonade, you know, the range of greatness, I don't know where it lands. Mm. And that's, that's the funny thing is because depending on where you are in Latin America or even in Mexico itself, the green one will be called a limon yeah, mm -hmm. or a lima. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then in, in English, the green one is for sure is the lime. Right. And then the yellow one's the lemon. So you have all these people getting mixed up. When they, when they ask for a limonada, they're thinking they're going to get a lemonade. Yes. And, then not. and in some places they will. I mean, it's just kind of like. Well, and I've been deceived many a time, right? Like I've, <laughs> I've ordered and not gotten what I thought I was going to get and not been happy about it. But I keep ordering it because it's just necessary, right? Like to just try. I might not try it more than once, but I'll try it. Okay. You know, I'm going to let you have that. <laughs> I hate lemonade, so. But why? why mm, not my thing. It's just like an ice cold lemonade, which I'm not supposed to drink ice cold drinks at all. But ice cold lemonade. Yeah. Somebody so touches the soul. You gotta try uh, a uh, cucumber le limonada. Ew. Ooh. Oh okay, yeah, aunt. yeah. Okay, yeah. I'll try that. <laughs> yeah. One of one of my uh, former teammates. Uh, Johnny Major Rivers III just started a new company here in San Antonio called Thirsty AF, and they deliver, um, you know, aguas frescas of sorts, and one of them is the cucumber lemonade. I feel like what I should do is have a YouTube review where it's just like the snobby lemonade connoisseur and just travel around the world, like, bitching about people's lemonade. Like, that's what I should do. Yeah, you could be the Anthony yeah. Bourdain of lemonade. Man, I'm telling you. There's a market. <laughs> it's out there. It's out there somewhere. Uh, pick it up, you know, because they, yeah. Outside of writing plays, writing operas, writing poems, writing books, writing, writing novels, yeah. also going to review lemonade. Yep. Yeah. Now let's talk about the other thing you also do. You make jewelry. I do. See the, the, can you see uh, them? I, let's, see? let's get a little closer. Mm. The eyes today, the eyes. Yeah, I do. You know, um, how'd you get into that? Where, where does where does that come from? It originally started because I was going to Women in the World Poetry Slam and I was broke and I needed a way to make money. Um, I've always been an entrepreneur. Even when I was little, I would like sell hair bows like for Easter. Like I was always pocketing somebody's cash. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, I needed a fundraiser. And so I started creating jewelry. But then I found this real satisfaction in being able to create something and have it be done. And like, I didn't have to re keep re revisiting it like I do with the writing. And so it became like this other thing that feeds me. That's like, if you want to be creative, but you don't want the pressures of having to come back to this and wonder if it should be jelly or it should be jam, right? Like and the, so the connotations of each of those words, like, bah, it was just a way that I was able to be able to like, okay, I can sit, you know, with wood and paint in front of me, or I could sit with metal and just bend and mm -hmm. find what shape falls in and then say, oh, I like that. So I'm going to put it on a, you know, put it out for people to like. And people have, have liked the work and have bought it and have had really unique pieces that they get to wear, you know, that I made, which is cool. And I get their money, which is also awesome. <laughs> Boom. Boom. And is all of that available on your website? It is. Just go to my merch site, my, my, merch, my merch page. And I have an Etsy site as well, which is Live Life Deep on Etsy. So you can kind of follow me multiple ways and I'm always updating and throwing new stuff up. If you uh, follow me on Insta Instagram, which is Live Life Deep, um, I actually will usually preview things there at a lower price and then I put them on Etsy and have to go put them up because Etsy charges fees. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you want the new newness, then you can get it on my Instagram um, before everybody else and be a fly in the streets. Boom. <laughs> now, uh, I know as, as, a, as a fellow performer, um, I'm jonesing for the stage, right? Yeah. Like to be in front of people yes. and um, just that interaction, that live interaction with people, uh, which doesn't look like it's gonna happen anytime soon. Mm -hmm. um, what, I guess, you know, Jerry Springer's final thoughts. Um, sure. what, what are kind of like your your thoughts on like life moving forward? You know, what's... what's yeah. I mean, what, I think, depending on the day you're going to get a different answer from me you know my husband <laughs> my husband jokes because he's like one day you're buying everything and you're like it's okay we'll make more money and then the next year you're like we're all gonna die hold on to it all right like <laughs> and so 
I think that the same answer goes with me. You know, some days I'm like, I'm going to write a stage production because one day the world will open and we'll all be able to sit and, you know, in a gallery and theater seating. And then the next day I'm like, if I don't learn how to master Twitter, I'm going to die. <laughs> right. So um, today I'm landing more on the, you know, the hopeful side of saying that I think that, you know, the word that I decided that was going to be my 2020 word after all this started was pivot. Right. Mm. Of like that. I'm going to figure out, well, you know, I can't be on stage right now. And I probably wouldn't have written essays as many, especially as I've been writing, if I could have been, right? So is there another platform that says I can still be relevant, that I can still be impactful, that I could still kind of stir the pot that's not on stage, right? And if there is, like, can I can I develop that muscle too while I'm sitting still? Because eventually, you know, even the 1918 crap, suddenly became something different in, in the 1920s, right? And then there was the Harlem Renaissance and there was like birth of creativity and life and like beautiful, right? So that's got to come sometime. Now I might be 45 by the time it comes, but you know, it's got to come. We're 45. You know, ain't nothing wrong with 45. Right? So, <laughs> so for me, it's like figuring out if this is a new season, how do I pivot? How do I, how do I accept what this is? How do I reinvent my craft? How do mm. I do something that I never did before for the sake of just learning how to do it, knowing that it might influence my craft later? You know, when I was playing piano, I never knew that I'd write an opera. I just knew I loved playing piano because my grandmother did. And so later on in life, it came to be this thing that served me really well. And so I think I think now is the time to like do the risky thing, try something brand new, learn a new language, you know, um, try crafting and pottery and you know pour resin for the first time like dude just do crazy crap because eventually it's going to be something that merges together to make your your you know yourself as an artist stronger and better yeah Yeah. well pottery your new medium you said what is pottery going to be your new medium no i'm going to pour resin though that's coming (laughs) resin is i've been like googling resin kits for the last month so it's i mean it's going to come it's resin is coming um I mean, Adrian, Adrian Van asks, is there a medium you haven't conquered? And clearly the answer is no. <laughs> uh, conquered is such a weird word. Like, I wouldn't say that I'm a, an instrumentalist. Like, I wouldn't say I'm a pianist. I would say that I learned to play piano for six years, right? Like, mm-hmm. but if you put a piano in front of me, I can't sight read because I haven't done it in forever, right? Like, and I mean, I know the, how, to, how to move my hands, but it's not going to be the thing that you expect from someone who trained, right? Mm-hmm. And so... I, I really do feel like in a lot of ways, I've tried a lot of things, including fencing. Yeah, I did that. So they told me that one butt cheek gets bigger than the other. And then I wasn't playing. That's not, that's not cool, right? Um, but I've always seen someone who's like, if it's if it's artistic, I'll try it once. And then, you know, then if I don't like it, I mean, what did I lose? You know, just a couple hours, whatever. Yeah, I mean. The world's coming to an end. Right, you know. Hey, but before that, you you, I mean, You've got messages of hope because you know you you talk, you talked about in the beginning that you'd, you'd end us on a on a happy note. Yeah, let's do it. I'm I'm gonna do this poem called "Brag" that I never do because it's braggadocious. Mm-hmm. But I feel I'm feeling kind of feeling myself right now. All right, take it I feel away. Like feeling myself, ladies All and right. gentlemen. Deborah Deep Mouton Mouton because it's French. Mouton. I challenge this poem to find a flaw. Cause this right here be color cut and clarity. Let me introduce you to supernova incarnate. June Cleaver meets sister soldier, a full plate, a match burned in the middle. I can hold the sizzle of salmon croquettes and the liquor of my baby's wine on my hip. Lead a training while two-stepping six loads of laundry up two flights of stairs. Watch my bathroom shine and still fill your belly to a satisfied thing. I make postpartum depression rethink its life choices. I make suicide give up on itself. How many mothers can woo a seat on maternity leave, build a kingdom before the umbilical cord heals, milk themselves of their own honey while driving, the next generation's intellect suckle at my teat? I am a child-loving phenomenon. Did I mention Houston borrows my voice for itself on my slow days? Did I mention how my husband knows the climax of all my titles? How he waits for me to come home like the earth waits to be heated by the sun? I am the reincarnation of Samson's chariot. I am a raised fist in the midst of a snowstorm. I am the poet you claim to be in your elevator pitch. And this ain't about to win no slams. Ain't about to come up. Um, ain't about to be no come up. It's not willing to trigger itself for your applause because praising yourself ain't about no tens, but this poem be the closest thing to self-acceptance. So I'll write myself this final stage. 
the way I inscribed a way out of homelessness three times over. Let this body be my own shelter poem, my voice be a gawkable chandelier. Swing yourself into midnight dance party. Let black history follow my shadow. Let their ends meet here. Even when they don't, I am full enough to fill in the gaps. Been doing it all my life. Crown myself the princess of petty, the queen of clapback. I have remapped the world and stretch marks around my waist. These fire starter thighs rub a hole through every critique I never requested. Haters be humbled, watch me, and all my laureate, all my TEDx decorum, all my coach and mentor, all my fuck up and fall gain speed. Try to keep up as I rise, the sun and the moon rest at my heels and I boast until the page that beckons my pen submits, until the poem I crafted 15 minutes moves you to tears, until I laugh a song that may sound like a crack in a new octave. Call me mama, like the, all the world kneeling at all of my fat fabulous and I dare you to find something wrong with that. Thank you for that. You know, it's very, you know, I think that art, you know, they, they turn to us, they turn to artists for more than just telling the truth, but sometimes for those messages of hope. Yeah. Because it's really easy to get bogged down in like all the crap going on in the world right now. Yes. Uh, and it's better, I mean, not better, but we have to have these messages that take us beyond that. So thank you for mm -hmm. that. Yeah, anytime. I mean, I think we got to get to a point where we just start, like, I think we're all in grief, right? We're grieving the world that we lost. We're grieving the things that we lost this year. We're grieving the people that we lost this year, right? Those are heavy things, but we have to get to a point um, where we accept what this reality is, right? And we figure out how do we work through it how do we become better on the other side and that we let go of normal in hopes for what the future may be. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. You have always been a beacon of hope and a powerhouse of a poet and a person. So we were so happy that you agreed to come on and chat with us. No, anytime. I love y'all so much. And thank you for making this platform available. This is awesome. Mm -hmm. If anybody wants to tip your poet, she does accept cash apps. It is live life deep. Um, you can also find her merchandise, both books and jewelry on her website, livelifedeep.com slash books and merch, or just go follow her on Instagram at livelifedeep. That was Deborah Deep Mouton. Thank Ooh, you. Anytime. Thank y'all so much. Yeah. Now, Eddie, let's talk about what is happening next week. Okay, so usually this is where I say, oh my God, I'm so excited about, but this is, and, and, and it's not insincere. But this time, I'm super really excited uh, because uh, Carmen Tafoya is going to be here. <gasps> she was the first poet laureate of San Antonio, um, a poet laureate of Texas. Uh, she's been in this poetry business for a long time and actually started uh, some Mexican-American studies programs um, throughout the area. She, she's, she's a pioneer mm. uh, and she's a local and um i've been to her house so <laughs> she's, she's amazing i can't can't wait to, to see her next week on here thank you to everyone that joined us tonight for this conversation as a reminder all of these conversations that we've been having are available on our facebook page if you want to watch the videos of previous conversations or they are now available via wherever you get your podcasts, be it uh, Apple or Spotify or Google. Um, you can just search for Blah Poetry on uh, any podcast platform and you can listen to any of our previous episodes. Uh, and also the Blah Poetry Spot, make sure to follow us on Facebook <coughs> or on Instagram, Write Art Out on Instagram, W-R-I-T-A-R-T-O-U-T uh, to find out what we're doing. We will be back next week with another episode of Words and Shit. That was Eddie Vega. And that was Chibur <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, y'all. Be safe. Good night. Good night.